Hey, and good morning, King's Chapel. On behalf of the staff and leadership team here, let me be the first to say Happy Mother's Day to all our moms watching today. I hope this is a gorgeous day for you to be with your family and that your husbands and kids are pampering you even right now with back rubs and hot coffee and hugs and donuts if you need them. We just want you to know how much you're appreciated today. So Happy Mother's Day, moms of KCP and all those who are gathering with us this morning. This week I was reminded in our Philippians Bible study of a vision that Paul shared with this church family that had become so dear to him. He said in chapter 1 verse 5 that he was grateful for their partnership in the gospel. And even though he was writing this letter from a Roman prison cell, even though he couldn't be with them in person, he was continuing to draw hope and encouragement because of their koinonia, that's the Greek word, uh, their commitment to gospel partnership. And then he goes on to describe how that partnership takes place through mutual giving and receiving and prayer, their reputation in Christ, their mission is all staked together, anchored together in this beautiful partnership. Well, this is a huge part of our vision for how we desire for church life to take shape at King's Chapel as well. And so if you're new to us through these videos on Sunday, or if you're interested in getting more connected to a community like this, we would love for you to fill out our connect card on our website at kcpchurch.org. You know, another way that gospel partnership took shape was through the sharing of needs. When Paul was in prison, the Philippians said, we've got you. We're going to make sure that you have what you need for food and basic provision and prayer. Now, this kind of care and concern isn't meant to be some kind of extra in gospel community. It's meant to be woven into the very fabric of who the church is. So if you have any needs right now, financially, paying the bills, health-wise, travel, groceries, prayer, well, the elders and the deacons and the leadership here, we want to help. And we have resources that are earmarked for those needs. We want to make sure that you're taken care of and loved and prayed for. So please go to our website and use the link. It's right on our homepage. And it simply says, share a need or a prayer request. We want to take care of you and make sure you're experiencing gospel community as well. As we dive into our last week of our Exodus series this morning, I want you to remember what we saw last week, that as the community of God all banded together and shared their time, their talent, their resources, they had more than enough to meet every need. That's what we're trusting God to do in and through us right now. So let's open up in prayer this morning and ask that God would prepare our hearts for worship. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be with you this morning. We're grateful to be the people of God, to be blessed by you through the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And we want to make sure that your name is magnified in and through our lives, even during this strange season of, of quarantine. We pray that the hope of the gospel would go out into our community uh, through our words and our actions and our testimony, Lord God. We also pray that we would be a church home that would uh, help people feel connected and experience gospel partnership. So may we experience that this morning through our worship, and may our worship be in word and in truth, in spirit and in truth, Lord God. We pray that uh, you would be meeting the needs in our community as we, the people of God, share our resources with glad and generous hearts. So give us glad and generous hearts this morning as we gather and as we come into your presence and experience the, the generous grace that you dispense upon us in Jesus Christ. 
And we pray in your name. Amen. Psalm 108. My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth.
scripture passage is from Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, King's Chapel. It is a delight to be with you this morning. We are finishing up the book of Exodus, which we've been looking at this entire year. And it's been such a sweet time of reading about God's goodness to his people and redeeming them from slavery and providing for them in the wilderness and covenanting with them and now giving them his presence. As we begin this morning, I'd like you to consider one of the phrases that we often use to talk about somebody who is a, let's say, a daydreamer, someone who's uh, kind of their, their way they view life is often in a naive sort of way, flitting from one thing to the next. And what do we say about that person? We'd say, well, oh, she, she has her head stuck up, stuck up in the clouds. She has her head stuck in the clouds. Well, that's usually a negative way to refer to somebody. It's, it refers to somebody who's not only just a daydreamer, but they probably don't tend to view life in a very realistic way, that they are not connected to the harsh realities of life on planet Earth. But this morning, I want us to be a people who do have our heads stuck up in the clouds. Or maybe not clouds, but the cloud. You see, what Taylor just read for us from Exodus chapter 40 as it concludes this great book is God in his glory comes down as a cloud, giving the people of Israel his presence, coming down upon the tabernacle, filling it with his glory. And so the call for us this morning is to come and, and in many ways to be people who would put our hands behind our head, put our backs against the grass, look up and gaze upon the cloud of God. You see, this manifested and represented his presence with the people of Israel. And just like when you look at the clouds, and you perhaps did this game as a kid, or perhaps you still do it, if you're one of those who gets out on the hammock and looks up in the clouds, is you, you play the game, you know, where you look up and you, are, you try to find the various shapes that might be there. And you, you're with a friend or a sibling, and you go, hey, 
there's a turtle, that cloud looks like a turtle, or, or that cloud, that cloud looks like an elephant, or the easiest one, if you're not seeing some sort of animal, is you just go, hey, that, that cloud looks like cotton candy. That's always a crowd favorite. Well, this morning, what we get is if we will look at the shape of the glory cloud of God, it will teach us something about the character of your God. And so the main point that I want us to see this morning is that the cloud that comes down upon the tabernacle signifies something to us about our God. It signifies something about our God. It's going to tell us three things, three descriptions of our God, that ways, ways where this, what this glory tells us, this glory cloud tells us. And the first is this, that this cloud is big. It is a big cloud. When it says that this cloud comes down, it doesn't simply fill up part of the tabernacle. It says it fills up the entirety of the tabernacle. The glory of God filled up this space. And what we see here is this is representative and symbolic of the immensity of God's presence. The enormity of it. That God is so beyond what anything in this world can contain. In fact, at the dedication, a couple hundred years later, at the, the dedication of the temple, when the mobile tabernacle becomes permanent place at the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon, at the dedication of that event, says this in 1 Kings 8, verses 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth, he asks? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less, how much less this house that I have built. In other words, what Solomon is confessing here is that as great and wonderful and grand as the tabernacle is and grand as the temple is, it cannot come close to actually containing the fullness of God's glory. We have a God for whom we, even when we experience his glory, we merely get foretaste, little tastes of who he is, a sense of his presence. Well, you might ask this question then, then, then how is it that God is able to even show us any of his glory? How can God, who is this great and this immense, even contain his glory in some way, shape, or form in the tabernacle or in the temple? Well, there's this word that theologians will use. It's called the principle of accommodation, that God accommodates himself. He accommodates his glory so that we can be close to it and experience it, even on this earth, in some way, shape, and form. Let me illustrate what accommodation means this way. The word glory literally means weight. And so often I, I play with my boys in our room, and one of our favorite games that we have I've played with both of my boys is we play this kind of half-wrestling, half-football game. And the way it starts out is this is that they start on one, out on one side of the room, and I get into kind of like a defensive position. And they're like the running back, and they come rushing towards me as if they're coming rushing towards the line of scrimmage in football. And my job and the joy for them is that I tackle them and throw them to the ground. Now the question is, in that moment, in order for us to play, I have to accommodate to them. Because if the full weight, remember glory means weight, if the full weight of me as an adult male were to come down upon them, it would crush them. And we could never play the game. We could never enjoy each other in the way that we want to enjoy each other. And so I have to physically accommodate them, myself to them. 
so that I only bring to bear some of my weight. And that's what God does here. And that's what God does for us. And he's most beautifully done it in the person of Jesus. And while Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, still even in Jesus, we see that he emptied himself, it says in Philippians 2. That Jesus, the incarnate God, while expressing the fullness of God's character, is still an accommodation of God to us. So that we might experience God's character and his beauty, a, a peace, a taste of his glory. And that's the first thing we see as we look at the shape of this cloud, is that it is a big cloud. It is an immense cloud, and it symbolizes the fact that we have an immense, glorious, uncontainable God. That's who you serve. That's the God you bow down to. That is the God who is worthy of worship. Well, second, we see in the shape of this cloud is that he is, this cloud is holy. It's not just big, it is a holy cloud. And in verse 35, it actually says that this cloud so fills the tabernacle that Moses, the man who has been the mediator between God and his people, Moses, who's been able to see the backside of God's glory, who's been able to walk up to Sinai into the cloud of God's glory, on this occasion, God's presence is so immense and so filling up the tabernacle that it's actually a barrier to Moses coming into God's presence. And what this symbolizes is the fact that it's this, that we have a holy God, and that when he comes down and we begin to sense and experience his holiness, and we sense who he is in all of his glory, often that actually almost provides, pushes us away from God. It's a barrier to truly and fully experiencing him. We actually want to, can't feel like we can go into his presence because of the weight of his holy glory. It's a reminder this is who the God that we serve. This is not something that we should take for granted that God is in our presence. But God is now in the tabernacle and near to us. And yet we must always be aware of the fact that he is a holy God. That we don't go just rushing into his presence. See, the reason why Moses isn't able to go into the tabernacle and into the cloud in this case is God hasn't yet invited him. All the other times when Moses would go up on the Mount of Sinai and experience God's glory there, it was an invitation by God. See, we don't just go rushing into God's presence willy-nilly, but we must be invited. But the beautiful thing is God does invite us. You know, it's interesting. Moses doesn't enter the tabernacle here. But the very book that comes after Exodus is a book where Bible reading plans go to die. It's called Leviticus. And Leviticus is entirely a whole book that is dedicated to this idea. How can priests, how can Moses, how can we bring our, the sacrifices into the very presence of God and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? If God's glory and his holiness is there, how can we go there? Well, we go there through the shed blood of the Lamb, and that's what's true for us. You see, God is always holy, and we must always remember that. And we must have a deep sense of the glory cloud of God's holiness that would almost form a barrier between us and God. But we must also remember the beautiful truth that in Christ Jesus, we have the perfect Lamb and the perfect priest so that the barrier between us and God's presence is removed, so that we, like children, are invited into God's presence at all times, 
and in all places, and we can run towards our holy God. Yes, we kneel, we bow. We are of a sense of our sinfulness. And yet we also have a sense that we're welcome and we're invited because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. This cloud is a holy cloud, representing the perfect character and nature of our glorious God. And yet we get to come near because of the work of Jesus. Well, lastly, what this cloud tells us in the shape of this cloud shows us that our God is omnipresent. This cloud is omnipresent with the people of Israel. And we see this, really, this is a theme that runs throughout all five of these verses in 34 through 38 of Exodus 40. Even at the very beginning, the very shift from verse 33, where they complete in the tabernacle and they put the finishing touches on it, and verse 34, is that the, immediately in verse 34, as soon as they finish the tabernacle, God's presence immediately comes rushing down. It's almost as if, the writer is trying to communicate to us that God can't wait to get his presence in the midst of his people. This is like a father who has been gone for a long time from his children, and he's getting off of the airplane, and he is running through the terminal because he can't wait to be with his kids once again. This is the character of your God, that this cloud is omnipresent. And it goes on to this, how this cloud is described, that whenever this cloud is taken up and this cloud moves out in front of the people of God, and when God stops, the people of God stop. They stop moving. And the presence of Yahweh, it's so wonderful that the presence of Yahweh, this Lord, can get up and move and go anywhere. Isn't that wonderful? You see, this is a God who is not constrained to some local place. He is not the God of simply of the Red Sea or the God of Sinai, or the God of Canaan. He is the God over all of the earth. You see, this is a comparison between the covenant Lord of Israel and all the other gods of, ancient, of the ancient Near East. They are localized, that they would be a gods of fruits and vegetables and various parts of the cosmos, or they would be a god of a particular city. But this God, this God can be anywhere and everywhere, and he is with us, present with us no matter where we go. This is manifested and described and shown to the people of Israel and is of comfort to them throughout the Old Testament. A couple examples of this, one would be in Ezekiel chapter one, one of your favorite places to go in the Bible, I know, because Ezekiel chapter one is a bizarre place, but there's something beautiful being communicated in that passage. There is this description, it says there that Ezekiel is with a bunch of the people of Israel who have been taken out of Israel and they are exiled in Babylon. And they're actually standing by some canals in Babylon. And Ezekiel has this vision. And it's this vision of the glory of God, of God's presence. That it, there it's these four wheels. And these four wheels go to the north and the south, the east and the west. It's kind of like a, a chariot that can go anywhere. And on top of these four wheels is a platform with a throne. And sitting on this throne is something like the glory of God. And so what is the Ezekiel, what is the point of that whole manifestation, that vision for Ezekiel? Is it showing him, and God is communicating to Ezekiel, even here, even in enslavement, in exile, I am there with you. I am the omnipresent God. 
You cannot run away from me. You can, no one can rip you out of my hands, no matter where they take you. I am not merely the God of Israel, that place, and the God of Jerusalem, but my, this God goes everywhere with his people, and that is good news for us. The same thing can be said. It is illustrated in Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 12, where the psalmist there says this. He asks, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, it's the place of death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is always our comfort, that our Lord, the shape of our God, is the God who can go and can be anywhere, no matter where you are. It can be said, even here, God is near. Even here, God is near. The cloud is with us. And that doesn't mean that you will always be calm, but it means that even in the midst of your fear, you are never alone. Whether you're in the classroom, or whether you're at the, a, a, a workroom, whether you're at the funeral parlor, or whether you're at their dinner table all alone by yourself, ultimately you are never alone. I want to apply that, just that implication for us during this season. You see, because in our, this time of social isolation, so many of you may be spending more time alone than you've ever experienced. You're not around your friends like you, you want to be. You're separated from grandparents and from parents and from children, and you long to be around them. And there's a sense of loneliness that can be a part of this whole quarantine experience. Lack of friendships. And then there's also the sense of the places that we find ourselves. Some of you are in a place where you're financially hurting, even there. In financial destitution, God is there. You may have found that you, your job is no longer available to you. And you're wondering about your vocation and even your purpose. Even in those places and those questions, understand that God is there. Some of you are experiencing loneliness. God is there in the midst of our loss. And lastly, I want you to see that the cloud is omnipresent. And that means not just simply in all places of the earth, but over all time. His presence is permanent. You notice so that's how the passage ends in verses 38. Wherever they went, wherever they journeyed, for all time, God is going to be with us. This cloud is going nowhere. It was to be at the center of the life of God's people forever and for all time. The Lord has remained faithful to his covenant promise. And if you remember, that's where we began our study of the book of Exodus. That Exodus is rooted in God's covenant promises to the men who are called the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God in his covenant promises is he has said, I will redeem your people and I will bring them back to the promised land and I will be their God and they will be my people. And God has been faithful to keep his promise to Israel's fathers and he is faithful to keep his promises to you. You see, nothing can thwart God's plan to give us his presence. 
not the evil kings of the earth, the pharaohs, not the lack of resources available to us in the wilderness, not even our own unfaithfulness can ruin God's plans. But the Lord's guidance shows us that nothing can keep us from him. Nothing. He will move heaven and hell in order to bring us near to him, our omnipresent God. And the same manner in which the Lord our God fills the tabernacle here, we see him filling the story of the Bible. He is consistently coming and revealing and is present with his people and his glory. We see it again in the temple when the tabernacle becomes permanent in Jerusalem. And then we find the fullest expression of God coming in all of his grandeur, his, his, his might and his power, his bigness, and filling up in all of his holiness, filling up a people, a new temple, in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. You see, the same descriptions that are used here in Exodus chapter 40 and in 1 Kings 8, when God's glory fills the temple, are used in Acts chapter 2. For example, in Acts 2, verses 2 and 3, when the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon the people of God, the apostles and the disciples, here's the description. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. You see, Acts chapter 2 is part of the glorious news of the gospel that because of the atoning work of Jesus, we, the glory of God doesn't simply reside in one physical place. It now comes to reside in us, never to leave again, never to abandon us, never to be apart from us, so that the holy, grand, omnipotent God would be omnipresent inside of his people. Acts 2 is the account of the filling of that holy God in us. And on this journey, we follow our holy Redeemer as he guides us to the promised land. There is no cloud overhead for us. No, there is a Holy Spirit inside of us, remaking us into the people of God. And so here's my call, and here's the implication for us. The call to Israel and the call to you and me is that we are to stay in the presence of God. We are called to be a people who labor together to dwell in the midst of God's glory. Now that God has given us his presence in the Holy Spirit, the work of the Christian is to remain, to stay put in God's presence. You mean, that word stay, it's such a simple word, isn't it? I mean, it's a word that a dog understands, that we teach them from an early age. But as we have learned in the last eight weeks, it is far easier to say stay than it is actually to stay. This is why Jesus commends Mary, Martha's sister, when she says she has done a great thing by sitting at my feet. This is why Peter says to Jesus, I have nowhere else to go but to be with you. And it's why Jesus on his last night before the crucifixion looks at his disciples and says, will you abide with me? Will you stay with me? Will you pray with me? Staying with God. What this means is you dwell with him. Day in and day out. Getting in his word coming to understand the beauty of the character of your God, gazing up into the cloud of his glorious presence to dwell deeply with him. And what that also means is this, 
Staying doesn't simply mean that you spend a lot of time doing devotions. Oh, it definitely means that. But it also means this, is that you follow him wherever he leads you. You see, how do the people of Israel stay in God's presence? Well, whenever the cloud would be lifted up, they followed the cloud. Whenever the cloud stopped, they waited. They would make camp. When the cloud didn't move, they didn't move. And so it is with us. If you want to stay in the presence of God, as Jesus says when he called his disciples, follow me, he said. So you follow God's commands. That's what it means to stay with God. And it's why in the Apostle Paul, later on in one of his epistles, said that we are to walk or keep in step with the Holy Spirit, the one who leads us internally. That we keep in step with his longings and his desires, and that's how we live our life. God's presence with us. This is the beautiful truth, that God gives us this. And you know what? That is what you were made for. You were made to dwell with God. It's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's the, the end of the place where we're going to experience ultimately in heaven is to dwell fully with God. To know the glory of God is to know that his presence is the light that warms you. To know the glory of God is to see that he is the wind that enlivens you. That the greatness of this God who is the one who awes you and the embrace that consoles you. That's what it is to dwell with God, to experience him. And so this leads me to think that perhaps we should pray maybe a childlike prayer, which is, oh Lord, may it be cloudy today in my life with your presence. May it always be a cloudy day. It's a beautiful thing that the people of Israel experience and that we get to experience now because of the Holy Spirit whose presence is blood bought for us through the Levitical atoning work of Jesus. And so we come to the, this end, this phase of Israel's story. But just as this chapter ends, another one picks right back up. And so our gaze is directed to where Israel is going to be going from here. And so the story of Exodus matters because this story actually provides the empowering, the motivation, and the truths that the next generation of Israel needs in order to live into the calling of God to follow God wherever he leads them, which in this case is the promised land. You see, you may remember this from way back at the beginning of our series. I know that pre-quarantine, pre-coronavirus, that seems like it was another dimension ago. But what we said is in order to rightly apply the book of Exodus, we have to understand the original audience. And the original audience was second generation Israel. You see, this first generation all dies out in the wilderness. And it's the second generation, they're on the, the cusp of entering into the promised land. And God is saying to the people of Israel through the words of Moses, follow me. When my glory cloud lifts up and moves towards the promised land, you follow me because I am big and I am holy and I am with you. And all the truths of Exodus are there to encourage the people of Israel to live into the purpose that God has given them. And so what I want you to see here is not only does this cloud signify for us something about our God, it actually also signifies for us who we are, something about us. This is an epilogue, so to speak, to our sermon today, to our series. We see in verses 36 through 38, it's interesting. It says there over three different times, it says that they, talks about journeys and how the people of Israel would, the cloud would go up and they would set out and follow the cloud. Now, 
Here's the question. If they have God's presence fully with them, if they have the tabernacle, why do they need to keep going? They have God. Isn't that great? Why don't they just stop and enjoy God's presence in the form of the tabernacle? And why don't they just make camp and make their life right here? Well, because God has given them a mission while they're still on this earth. They are on the move doing the work that God has given them to do. And even as they become the people of God, they have a work to do as the people of God. And what is the purpose of the work that God has given the people of Israel? Well, we see it in the covenant that God makes with Israel in Exodus chapter 19. It says in verses three or verses four through six, these are incredibly important verses. And God comes to the people of Israel and says there in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, right? The grandness of God. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, brought them into God's presence. Now, therefore, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, God says. And then in verse 6, it ends this way. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, why has God saved the people of Israel? Well, he's saved them for a purpose. You see, while there is a particular group within Israel who are called priests who will mediate between God and the people of Israel in much the same way in a larger scheme, the people of Israel are to be a kingdom of priests, a whole nation of priests, meaning that they are to mediate God's presence to all the nations of the earth. If you go back to the very beginning of, and look at Exodus, then you will see that this is what God is calling his people to do. They are to press through the wilderness and into the promised land, and they were to establish there a kingdom, a kingdom that would be a light to all the nations. And out of that kingdom would come a king, a true king, who would bless all the nations of the earth so that every tribe and tongue and nation would come to know the glory of God and know his character. And this is the vision to which they are to be living their life. You know, this is, it's interesting, in the, the, the Old Testament laws, there's even provisions for this, that when God gives the people of Israel his laws, he actually makes all these provisions for the ways that Gentiles will become part of Israel. This is the vision of Israel, to take Canaan, but then the nations are to gather in under the rubric of God as the king and become a part of the nation of Israel. This is illustrated in a, in a small moment in a, in a way. A partial fulfillment of this happens during the reign of Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 4 through, through chapter 10, you can see this. When the mobile tabernacle finally becomes permanent in the temple there in Jerusalem, and what happens in the ensuing years leading up to the temple and then after the temple is built, is there the description of Israel is almost Camelot-like. They talk about silver just being so numerous that it almost had, it was like nothing. It was like dirt. There was so much wealth in Israel. It talks about how things were all the way it should be. And what we see is that there are nations joining with Israel and helping build the temple. And then there's like this account of one who is called the Queen of Sheba, who comes from a great distance to come and worship Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, and to learn from the wisdom of Israel's King Solomon. This is the high point. 
And it symbolizes what Israel is to be, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed as they come under her umbrella, serving the true king and the true God. And at the close of Exodus, Israel has repented. God has forgiven them of their idolatry. He has given them his presence, and the glory of God has filled the tabernacle. And now they are poised to move into the promised land and finally become this kingdom that God is going to call all nations to join under the true headship and kingship of King Jesus. Now, this sounds familiar, right? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation joining, one people under one head. And so what does this have to do with us? Well, this tells us about who we are and what our purpose is in this world. You see, if you read Exodus and you connect it to the gospel and you say Exodus is about God saving his people from enslavement, that would be true, right? We understand that that's true. Exodus is about God, if we were to understand it in light of the gospel, God saving us from our enslavement to sin. But it's not just that. Exodus is also about the wilderness journey and how God provides for his people in the same way that God provides for us, his pilgrim Christians, on our way home. Exodus teaches us about how God forgives, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, and how he is faithful. And yet that is not ultimately the application of Exodus. And lastly, even the application of Exodus is not even that God is giving us his presence. But God redeems us from slavery to sin. He provides for us in the wilderness. He forgives us and gives us his presence. All of these things so that we might be his kingdom of priests on mission in this world, that we might be the people of God who might display how great it is to live under the kingship of Jesus and be an attractive community, an attractive nation that all peoples of the earth would want to join. And so it is for us, Christian, that we have been redeemed by King Jesus to invite other people to join this kingdom of priests, this royal nation, right? It's even what 1 Peter says. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God called us to himself? Why has God possessed us so that we might Declare to the world the glory of our God and King. That is the application of Exodus. That we have a good and perfect King who redeems, who provides, who gives us his presence, and to beckon all peoples to come join us in worshiping him. This is a movement. And what it means to be God's people in this world is that we don't get to simply dwell with God now, but that we press into displaying God's glory to the ends of the earth. And that's actually what God's vision is, right? That the whole earth would be covered from sea to shining sea with the glory of our God. That is the beautiful truth of Exodus. Amen.